greetings in the Master's name. It has been wonderful to be here this morning. Really good Sunday school class, good thoughts and devotions. I've been blessed and inspired. And when men can sit in a circle and discuss scripture and, and really talk about what's there and what it means, that's the way you grow. That's the way we help each other, we stretch each other, and we become have a better understanding of what scripture is. I want to thank you all in the, in the men's class, and I hope all the Sunday school classes were that good and inspiring. The message this morning is different than I normally would speak, would preach. And this message, and maybe some of you have heard it, I apologize if you have, I've preached it before. Um, it was an assigned message. It took some studying and some digging into history, and um, I'm not sure why the Lord laid it on my heart this morning, but it's, it's um, a little bit of a history lesson, but it's what I feel like I'm supposed to bring. The title of the message is, Why Am I an Anabaptist? And I wanted to start this uh, message with the text. I don't use a lot of scripture in this message, but we're going to start with John 15. I want to read verses 9 to 17. And what you'll find in this, in this short passage of Scripture is sort of who and what we are and believe. And this, this message would be different if it would have been, why am I a Mennonite? Because Mennonites do herald back. We are considered Anabaptists. And you'll find out sort of why during the, during the message. But the Anabaptist way of living and reason for what we believe starts right here in this in this passage of scripture. Let's read this, John 15 verses 9 to 17. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you that you love one another. So I'd like to go through these verses and pull out little nuggets that give us inspiration for life and give us direction. Verse 9 we see that God, God loves us. As the Father hath loved, hath loved me, so have I loved you. God loves us. Verse 10. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. We abide in God's love through obedience. That is a key to a faithful church. It's true obedience to the word and to what God tells us. Verse 11, that obedience brings us joy. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. He's telling us, live in that love through obedience. And that's what brings us joy because we have that relationship with God through that obedience. Verse 12, love one another. Truly love one another. Sacrifice for each other. Real love. Verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Are we doing that as a body? Self-sacrificial love for each other. Verse 14. Again, ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. True obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to what he asks of us. Verse 15. Once again, we find a close relationship with God. I call you no more servants. We're not servants. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. 
as a believer, as an obedient believer of God, we are walking with Christ as brothers and sisters. How, I mean, isn't that just about too much to imagine that a human being can be a brother and a sister of, of our Lord? We're not servants anymore. We're his children. Verse 16. All this brings about a responsibility. This relationship with God brings about a responsibility. Go and bear fruit. And verse 17, again, love one another. Really love each other. That's a lot harder than say. To do is a lot harder than to say. To really love each other. That's sort of a synopsis, a basis for who the Anabaptists, why they started where they did and where they what we are today is this true love for each other and a true love for God. So we find that all throughout Scripture, but especially in the New Testament, love and obedience to God and love for each other is paramount if we're going to be a, a biblical church. Anyone who claims to love God but does not obey Him is not a true follower of God. And there's a lot of churches that won't teach that anymore today. So what are Anabaptists? Anabaptists started out and still are. True Anabaptists are followers of Christ who simply live out the teachings of the New Testament. That is the basis of what an Anabaptist is. And we'll find out why. So what sets them apart from other groups? Probably the clearest distinction today between Anabaptists and other groups would be that the Anabaptist communities, their commitment to put into practice and physically live out the directives given in the New Testament. Not just that's a nice thing. They do it. They live it out. Literal obedience to God's word is the defining difference. A lot of churches struggle with the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of Christians struggle with the Sermon on the Mount. God, you know, Jesus said that, but he didn't really mean that. You know, it, he, he didn't mean what he said. No, he meant what he said, every word of it. We will live out. A true Anabaptist, as you'll see what our forefathers did, the ones, maybe no relation to us, but they started what we, they wanted to live out, the words of Jesus. And they started a flame that's carried on and is carrying on here today in this church of living, literally living out what God asks of us. Literal obedience to God's Word. So I want to dive in this, in just into a snippet of history. I'm not a historian, but I did a little digging with this assignment, and I was so blessed with the things I found and you can dig, I'm sure some of you will know a lot more about Anabaptist history than I do. But I want to give just a short, a little bit of Anabaptist history here and see how this movement began. And Anabaptists, and I ought to say this, it's much more than Mennonites. There's, and I don't even know the list, there's a lot of different churches that are from Anabaptist roots. Not all of them have stayed true to that original the desire of those original forefathers to live out scriptures. But, so I'm not talking, that's why I say it would be different if I was, if this message was why am I a Mennonite. Why do we live, why do we have what we do as far as teachings today? All right, I want to go back. When did the Anabaptist movement begin? Well, the actual date, <clears throat> thankfully, there was somebody who took some notes. Because the actual date is January 21, 1525. And during that time, and remember, this is only about 1,500 years after Jesus came. 1525 wasn't that long. 1,500 years is a long time. But here we are over 2,000 years later, and that's a little farther away. But if you look at the Old Testament even 2,000 years isn't that long of time. Things have changed a lot since Christ came at this point. And there was much unrest and change happening in the church of that time. The church was largely Roman Catholic. That was almost the entire church would have been 
what so-called Christian church of the day would have been Roman Catholic. Luther, who was one of the fathers of what we would call now the Protestant church, had been pushing for a more biblical approach to salvation, among other things, because he was seeing that the Roman Catholic church was teaching more just a, a works religion, just do, all, do and say the right things, and you were good to go. And Luther got un, un, unhappy with that. He said, that's not what Scripture teaches. He did start to dig into Scripture and find out why, what, what real salvation was about. And he started teaching these things. And it brought, it started to bring some unrest and a new awareness of how incorrect the Roman Catholic Church was. And several men started to speak out for true biblical teaching. Now, some of these men eventually got together in Zurich, Switzerland, sort of a town council meeting. And at that time, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the governing bodies of the towns, it was kind of just all went together. And so the church usurps most authority over the state, and they kind of just worked together. So when they had a town council meeting, it was sort of a church meeting. And that's not all bad, but... Um, when the church is out of line, that's not a good thing. So these men got together and they, they uh, wanted to start to discuss some of these things that Luther was, was talking about. And the biggest part of their discussion that night was over infant baptism. And there was much controversy over the subject. I mean, it really, evidently, it really went back and forth that evening. And they kind of left that meeting not very, didn't have much uh, unity on it. So a few evenings later, and it, this would have been January 21, 1525, a group of those men that kind of had thought the same way about the subject, <clears throat> including George Blarock and Conor Grable, got together to further discuss the issue of infant baptism. And... Obviously, they felt like it was incorrect, which I'm glad for. So that evening, George Blyrock stood up, and he asked Conrad Grebel to baptize him with true Christian baptism upon his faith and knowledge. And since there was no ordained men at that point, Conrad agreed, and he baptized George Blyrock. And George then, in turn, baptized several other men that were present, even though some people had rejected infant baptism before that point, these were the first men that said infant baptism is wrong and we're going to be rebaptized with believer's baptism. As born-again believer in God, we need to be baptized in that state with a choice to be baptized instead of being baptized in an infant when you really didn't have a choice. So this is the first rebaptisms that had ever happened. So technically... That night was when the Swiss Anabaptist movement began. The name Anabaptist actually means rebaptizer. They were rebaptized. Now, today, thankfully, we're not rebaptized. But we still herald back to that movement that started that day, the teachings that we live by. And instantly, I mean, just like that, the news got out what was happening, and the church. And state, of course, they were sort of one. They reacted with persecution. we got to stop this right now. This can't be going on because that was undermining what the church was teaching. Well, it was biblical. To be a believer's baptism was a, a biblical thing. And so immediate, intense persecution kicked in. But it was too late, thankfully. The Anabaptist movement had begun. This this realization that there's a different way of looking at Scripture, a different way of living, had stirred in the hearts of people. And people started being drawn to this teaching. Two years later, this persecution had continued on, but the, the belief had continued to grow. And the leaders of the churches, of the Anabaptist churches, got together, and with Michael Sattler, Michael Sattler was a young man, he chaired the meeting. These, these leaders got together and came up with what they call a Schleidheim Confession of Faith. Well, three months after that, May 15, or I'm sorry, May of 1527, 
Three months after the Schlottheim Confession of Faith was put together, Michael Sattler, at the age of 37 years old, I did not realize until I did the study how young of a man he was, 37 years old, Sattler was arrested by the Austrian authorities along with his, his wife and several other Anabaptists. And I just have to think, how many, do we have anybody here in the upper 30s? Yeah, yeah, we had some young men in their upper 30s. I look back and say, wow, they didn't take them long to really look at Scripture and say, we, we, we believe this, we're going to follow Christ. So the Catholic ruler of Austria urged that Sattler be immediately executed by drowning, just get rid of him. But due to his prominence in the Anabaptist movement, Another ruler by the name of Joachim had an interest in due process. He wanted to see a, a fair trial happen. So at that trial, Sattler was charged with several things. He was charged with defying the emperor, rejecting the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, rejecting infant baptism, rejecting extreme, in, I'm sorry, extreme unction, dishonoring the saints, teaching against oaths, practicing the love feast, marrying, and advocating non-resistance. Sattler denied that he had defied the, emperor's, the imperial edicts or dishonored the saints, but he defended the remaining charges and, as moral and biblical. He also denied that courts should have jurisdiction in religious doctrine. He felt like courts shouldn't be ruling what religions taught and believed. Well, Sattler was convicted. The sentence to execution read, Michael Sattler shall be committed to the executioner. The executioner shall take him to the square and there first cut out his tongue and then fasten him to a wagon, I'm assuming by nailing him there, and there with glowing hot iron tongs twice tear pieces from his body, then on the way to the site of execution five times more tear pieces from his body, and then burn his body to powder as an arch heretic. And that's exactly what happened. The other men in the group were executed by sword, and the women, including Margaretha, his wife, were executed by drowning. We got it pretty easy today. Now I want to go back and see why these people, let's take a look at why these people, why, why they suffered this, why they were willing, well, what they were being really accused of, what, what set this off. The seven articles of the Schleidheim Confession of Faith were these. The first was believer's baptism. Second, excommunication of sinners. Three, three, the third was believers' communion. Four, separation from the world. Fifth, pastors in the church. Six, non-resistance. And seven, swearing of oaths. I want to explain those just a little bit. We understand what believers' baptism is. Somebody needs to be old enough to make a conscious decision. They want to follow God. And once they have committed their lives to the Lord, they are baptized. That's believers' baptism. Went against what the Roman Catholic Church taught. Excommunication of sinners. It means within the church, if there's someone who is willfully sinning and refuses to repent, they need to be put out of the church. The Bible's clear about that. We can't live in sin and be part of Christ, the body of Christ. Third was believers' communion. Only those who are born-again believers living for the Lord in everyday life are eligible to partake in communion. Simple to us today. Number four, separation from the world. We are to be different, to live lives that reflect Christ, not the world around us. Number five was pastors in the church. At that time, the only people that would, could handle the scripture were priests, and they were basically a hierarchy. And these Anabaptists were teaching that, no, our pastors need to be just like us. They're actually a servant in the church. They're not some hierarchy. They, they need to be drawn, men taken from us they wanted to exemplify what the New Testament church taught. New Testament church didn't teach priests. It taught pastors. Number six is non-resistance. Returning good for evil. No matter the situation, we love our enemies. And number seven, no swearing of oaths. We don't need to swear an oath. We simply tell the truth. So that's what Michael Sattler was 
That's why what brought down the wrath of the Roman Catholic Church on him. And these men were willing to give their lives for those seven beliefs. Well, it was more to it than that, but that's what, um, why he was targeted. So basic, Anabaptism, basic beliefs is another next section. What made Anabaptists distinctive from the Protestant movement? Because remember, at this time, same time this is happening, Luther is starting the Protestant, and several others are starting the Protestant movement. They're starting the church. There's people becoming, um, adapting to, or realizing that their salvation through the blood of Jesus, and they're joining the Lutheran church, and uh, well, I don't know what it would have all been called back then. But what made the Anabaptist uh, church movement different than the Protestant movement? Certainly, the Anabaptist founders owed much to Luther and the other Protestant reformers. In particular, Luther's emphasis on salvation through personal faith in Christ alone, by grace, as revealed in Scripture, prepared the way. That teaching is what stirred people's hearts. But on many other crucial issues, the Anabaptists differed as much from Luther as Luther did from the Roman Catholic Church. While giving Luther his due we do well to remember some historical realities. Luther, as well as Calvin and Zwingli, came to oppose harshly the Anabaptists. In fact, of the twenty to 40,000 Anabaptists martyred in the early decades, likely more were massacred by Protestants than by Catholics. It's realities of history. So the differences between Anabaptists and the Reformers we call Luther and, and Calvin and Zwingli. They were called the Reformers. The differences were, well, they were very stark differences. Luther, Calvin, and their associates wanted reformation of the medieval church. The Anabaptists wanted restoration of the New Testament church. That was the basis of what was different. The Reformers looked to the state to defend the establishment of an official religion, the Anabaptists, on the other hand, sought no government endorsement whatsoever. The Reformers asserted that all people in the realm should conform to the official state religion. The Anabaptists, however, proclaimed religious and civil liberty for all. The Reformers retained much of the Catholic church-state fusion of that day. The Anabaptists, who saw themselves as strangers and pilgrims in this world, rejected any fusion of faith and citizenship. The church of which they testified and for which they died was based on Jesus Christ alone, and it knew no state boundaries. And when you experience that, the reality of Christendom, a belief in Christ connecting you as brothers and sisters around the globe. We were just a couple months ago in March, we took a senior class, Keelan went with us, we went down to Guatemala. And to sit there in a church service, one church service we were in, it was held in three languages, English, Spanish, and Quiche. And to be brothers and sisters in Christ with people in that service, the, the older people in that, in that congregation couldn't, could barely understand, understand Spanish. The preacher would preach both in Spanish and English. And of course, we couldn't understand, I couldn't understand the Spanish or the Quiche. So we sang one song that was in all three languages. It was so neat. But they're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no, no boundaries to what we believe. It goes, it's, it's around the world. There were no state boundaries. The reformers specifically endorsed military slaughter by Christian soldiers. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, expressed love for their persecutors and prayed for them. The reformers fragmented and compartmentalized Christian living. Luther wrote, as a Christian man has to suffer everything and not resist anybody. So it sounds good when he starts. Let's finish the phrase. As a member of the state, the same man has to fight with joy as long as he lives. It's, you have to be this person here and you have to be this person over here. Kill your enemy here, love him over here. It doesn't work. The Anabaptists rejected such ethical dualism. As you can see, Anabaptists were not part of the great Protestant Reformation, but established a third option. You had the Roman Catholic Church, 
Protestant Reformation, and you had the Anabaptist movement. They upheld a very different and distinct set of values. So that was a little bit of a historical synopsis of where we started. There's much more. And there were Anabaptists that went off the rails on the other side and created cults and took over a city and ended up being exterminated because of how awful they became. It's not that Anabaptist movement was great all in all, but through it all, this teaching, the center line of teaching of the, the reinstating an early church belief and living out what Jesus taught has been the thread all along. So today, of course, many other groups have accepted much of what the Anabaptists rediscovered. And the differences between Protestantism and Anabaptism have decreased. But the total set of Anabaptist beliefs and practices remains distinctive. Even though the Anabaptists have not practiced and preached it consistently, Anabaptism is still one of the most complete applications of New Testament doctrines, principles, and early church example. So I'd like to look at 12 principles of Anabaptism, and I hope this doesn't get too boring. I hope you can stay with me. We do well to call ourselves back to the basics, even as we acknowledge that Anabaptists do not possess a corner on the truth. Certainly, or clearly, on certain emphasis, other churches can teach us some things. It's not that the Anabaptist movement has everything perfect. But there's 12 things, and this is talking about the greater body of Anabaptist believers. This is not talking about just Southeastern Conference. There's a lot of different Anabaptist churches. This is painting with a broad brush here. The basic beliefs of the Anabaptist movement. Number one of these 12, it's a high view of the Bible. While not worshiping the Bible itself, for that would be a bibliolatry, Anabaptists accept the Scripture as the authoritative Word of God and through the Holy Spirit, the infallible guide to lead men to faith in Christ and to guide them in the life of Christian discipleship. Anabaptists insist that Christians must always be guided by the Word, which is collectively discerned and also led by the Spirit. Number two, emphasis on the New Testament. Since Christ is God's supreme revelation, Anabaptists make a clear functional distinction between the, equal, the equally inspired Old and New Testaments. We see an Old and a New Covenant. We read the Old Testament from the perspective of the new and see the new as the fulfillment of the old. Where the, where the two differ, the New Testament prevails. And thus Anabaptist ethics are derived primarily from the New Testament. Number three, emphasis on Jesus as central to all else. And I hope people see that in our lives. Anabaptists derive their understanding of who Christ is directly from the word and emphasize a deep commitment to take Jesus seriously in all of life. Such a view runs counter to notions that the commands of Jesus are too difficult for ordinary believers. Anabaptists take Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as literal and meant to be lived out by his followers. Number four, the necessity of a believer's church. Anabaptists believe that Christian conversion, while not necessarily sudden and traumatic, always involves a conscious decision. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Believing that an infant can have no conscious, intelligent faith in Christ, Anabaptists baptize only those who have come to a personal, living faith. Voluntary baptism, together with a commitment to walk in the full newness of life and to strive for purity in the church, constitutes the basis of church membership. Number five, the importance of discipleship. Becoming a Christian involves not only belief in Christ, but also discipleship. Faith is expressed in holy living. In Christ, salvation and ethics come together. Not only are we to be saved through Christ, but we are also to follow him daily in, obe in obedient living. Thus, for example, Anabaptists from the beginning renounced the oath. They determined to speak truth. For them, there could be no gradation of truth-telling. Anabaptists continue to teach that salvation makes us followers of Jesus Christ and that he is the model for the way we are to live. Number six, insistence on church without classes or divisions. The church, 
the body of Christ has only one hit. While acknowledging functional diversity, Anabaptist believers set aside all racial, ethnic, and class distinctions because we are all one in the unity and equality of the body. The foot of the cross is a level. We're all the same foot of Jesus' cross. Number seven, belief in, a, in the church as a covenant community. Corporate worship, mutual, mutual aid, fellowship, and mutual accountability characterize this community. An individualistic or self-centered anabaptism is a contradiction in terms. Number eight, separation from the world. The community of the transformed belongs to the kingdom of God. It functions in the world but is radically separate from the world. The faithful pilgrim church sees the sinful world as an alien environment with thoroughly different ethics and goals. This principle includes separation of church and state. Therefore, Anabaptists reject all forms of civil religion, be it the traditional corpus Christianum or more, more recently developed forms of Christian nationalism. And sadly, Christian, Christian nationalism is something that is making its inroads into our churches closer than we expected. And if you don't believe me, look back at the last election when there was an Amish buggies with a, with, a, with a flag off the back and a support Trump written across the back. That's going against what we've always, what the Anabaptists have always taught. You have, the government is ordained of God. It is important. It is there. We are from a separate, that's not our focus. Christian nationalism is a temptation to, to a lot of people. Most of the more conservative groups, including us conservative Mennonites, would believe that separation from the world also means that we should have no involvement in government at all, including voting. Jesus left us a very clear example by having all power. He created us. He set up the government. He ordained the government, I should say. He didn't set it up. He ordained the government leaders. But when he walked on this earth, he never in any way tried to affect the government at all. He could have completely changed the government of this world. He didn't. That's exactly what the Jews expected the Messiah to do, to come in take over the government, set up a new government, and they would be free. Well, they could find freedom in Jesus, all right, but it had nothing to do with the government. And we are the same today. We don't need to try to change government. We try to change hearts. That's our goal. The government cannot change a heart of a person. Never has, never will. Only Christ can do that. That's our call. The government is there for a good purpose. God has placed it there. But... That's their responsibility. We have a different responsibility, and we need to keep those separate. Number nine, the church has a visible counterculture. As the United Fellowship of Believers, every Anabaptist congregation models an alternate community. We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning. I appreciated that. Such a covenant community functions, functions as an authentic counterculture. Each church represents the local body of Christ, and as such becomes the hands and feet of Jesus to the local community. No matter what part of the world that you take Christ's teachings to, they are always in some way cross-cultural. There is no culture that aligns itself perfectly with Jesus' teachings. So we, when we become a church, become his body, we enter that culture and try to affect the changes in people's hearts that, that needs to be done. All, no matter what culture around the world, Christ's teachings are counter to that. Number 10, belief that the gospel includes a commitment to the way of peace modeled by the Prince of Peace, and we call it non-resistance. Here, Anabaptists differ from many other Christians. Anabaptists believe that the peace position is not optional, not marginal, and not related mainly to the military. On the basis of Scripture, Anabaptists renounce violence in human relationships. We see peace and reconciliation or the way of love as being at the heart of the Christian gospel. God gave his followers this ethic, not as a point to ponder, 
but as a command to obey. It was costly for Jesus, and it may also be costly for his followers. The way of peace is a way of life. Every day, day by day. And I appreciated the devotional this morning, how, we, how you address that. How do we treat our neighbor? Is it with love? Number 11, commitment to servanthood. Just as Christ came to be a servant to all, so Christians should also serve one another and others in the name of Christ. Thus, separation from a sinful world is balanced by a witness of practical assistance to a needy and hurting society. We are not called to separate ourselves from the world physically, as in living in a commune somewhere. That's not what we're called to do. We are here to show sinners who Jesus is, partly by our daily walk of life. If they can't see our daily walk of life, how do they know we're different? Number 12, insistence on the church as a missionary church. Anabaptists believe that Christ has commissioned the church to go into all the world and all of society and to make disciples of all people, baptizing them and teaching them to observe his commandments. The evangelistic imperative is given to all believers, not just ministry, not just missionaries. Every born-again believer is called to reach out for, for the Lord. These principles that we've just talked about, these 12 principles, constitute the essence of of what Anabaptists believe. While each emphasis can be found elsewhere, a lot of churches will pick up on, on some of these. The combination of all 12 constitutes the uniqueness of Anabaptism. The Protestant Reformation had, got, had not gone far enough. It was good. It started with a good basis of salvation through grace by faith in Christ. But it didn't go far enough. The Earl of Anabaptists, while diverse and far from perfect, committed themselves to nothing less than the restoration of the New Testament church. We have the privilege of reemphasizing these 12 principles in word and deed here and now. So the title of this message is, Why Am I an Anabaptist? And as I studied for this message and thought about what they went through and what they believed, I found, found myself pondering the question, am I truly an Anabaptist? Would I be willing to go through what Michael Sattler did? And he was one of many, many, many. That was just one, one example. Am I willing to suffer for what I believe, for the truth of who Jesus is? To be an Anabaptist is to live a life of selfless surrender to Christ and service to others. See, it's not just serving for Christ. It's also serving our fellow man, even the ones that are really hard to get along with. I believe that Anabaptist theology, as I understand it, is, is correct doctrinally, according to Scripture. However, I also realize that we are people, and even born-again believers don't get everything in life right. Because of this, even though I see imperfections in the local body of believers, the teachings and beliefs that we hold dear are the teachings that I want to pass on to future generations. Now, to be frankly honest, I've not always felt the way I do now. I struggled to understand some of the teachings I grew up with. And two of those teachings were, one, non-resistance, and two, separation of church and state. And by that, we take it as far as abstaining from voting, not trying to affect the government in any way. Those two things were hard for me to grapple with when I was young. And that's okay. If you youth are, don't understand those things, it's okay. As I have watched what has happened in the world around me and watched people, people that really get involved in, really get tied up in, in the government, in, in trying to change the world around them through through, uh, might say mechanical means, through use of the government, through, through trying to put the right people in, it's imperative that we have good people leading us. I'm not knocking the government in that sense at all. But when we get tied up in that, our focus shifts. It becomes that instead of the hearts of people. And as I've watched that happen, 
I've, this teaching has become dear to me. I believe it. It's right. Christ left us that example of not, we aren't here to change them. We're here to change hearts. The church has been called to win the world to Christ through sacrifice, through love, and through service. We cannot get entangled with the affairs of this world. We have a higher calling. We are part of a different kingdom. Our goals and motives are controlled by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Am I, are you willing, as our Anabaptist forefathers were, to die for our faith? Am I an Anabaptist at heart? Are you? I think I've got some growth to do. Let's have some.